What do the cross, taxes, the Son of God, a fish, and a shekel have to do with one another? No, I'm not about to tell a joke. All of these elements are found in the text of Matthew 17, 22 through 27. And all of them have more in common than you might initially think. Since Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, and since Jesus' revelation that he as the Christ must suffer and die and rise again, Matthew's primary focus, his very narrow focus in all the gospel, has been Jesus' preparation for the cross. That said, it is in the context of Jesus' impending death that we approach this rather strange account of the two drachma tax collectors and the miraculous catch of a fish with a shekel in its mouth. This text, which may initially seem to be an odd or random account, actually has much to say about the work and person of Jesus, specifically about the mission he came to accomplish. In a strangely profound way, Matthew records Jesus' dialogue with Peter and then the shekel in the fish's mouth to give us an enacted parable, a lived out parable to show us what Jesus had come to do, the kind of atoning mission he had come to fulfill. Now, here's the point. According to Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27, Jesus came to pay a tax that was not his own. And by doing so, he has secured access to God for those of us who could not approach him on our own. That's the point. And we're going to get there in a rather strange way. Friends, I, I love preaching. And one of the reasons I love preaching is I get to study these texts that I normally would avoid having to study. Um, these texts about taxes and shekels and a fish's mouth and not sure what to do with all that. And then I get to find through this deeply, uh, deep study and exegesis exactly what it shows us about Christ. And so for me, it was just an entire refreshment this week, getting to see more of what, it, what Matthew's trying to tell us. We may now enter the holy place of God's presence in confidence because Jesus, who was exempt from any need of atonement, made atonement for us. Now, verses 22 through 23 Set our minds back on Jesus' coming crucifixion resurrection. Last week, we had a a small, brief break from this concept of crucifixion where Jesus addresses his disciples' deficiency. They are not ready for his coming death. He is about to be away from them, and they still cannot do what he has commissioned them to do. So here, Jesus comes back a second time, and he alludes to his, not just alludes to, explicitly states that he is heading to certain death. Jesus does not want his disciples to forget what is about to take place. As they are gathering in Galilee, he says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Now the phrase to be delivered into the hands of men is fairly ambiguous. Is he talking about his betrayal where he's going to be handed over by Judas to the Pharisees and to all these soldiers? Or is he talking about God handing it over? It's fairly ambiguous and could mean both. But I think as we know that it explicitly means God, right? God is about to hand over his son into the hands of wicked people to do as they will to him. 
Jesus is following a plan that God himself has designed. All was happening and would happen exactly as God intended it to. According to the plan, the king must be handed over. Yes, he's the son of David. Yes, he's the royal one. Yes, he's the priest. Yes, he's the one all humanity has waited for. He must be handed over. And more than that, he must suffer. He must die. But then he must raise again. There is no other way for him to save his people. I just, I, I want to, I want to draw this out. Most of us like to turn our eyes from any known suffering that's coming. We like to avoid the concept or avoid the discussion altogether. Jesus sets his eyes to Jerusalem and knows what's there. And he marches steadily on. He knows that what awaits him. He sees ahead and knows that there's a crown of thorns. He sees the nails. He sees the cross. He knows the absolute excruciating pain. But it must happen. Have you ever felt loved by someone? How great love must Jesus have for his people to know the deep suffering that awaits him so bad that it will be that he will cry out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is going to be that bad that the son of God who has never for one moment ever felt separated from his father is going to feel as if his father has turned his back. Knowing that that's coming. And he sees Adam. He sees Walter Hightower. He sees Jason Berg. And he marches on. That's the kind of love with which the Son has loved us. The frequency of Jesus' teaching about his upcoming death shows what was on the forefront of his mind. What is Jesus thinking about in Galilee? What is Jesus thinking about in Capernaum? When he goes to sleep at night in the tent on the way there, what is he dreaming about? What is he dwelling on? When he wakes up in the morning, what is on his mind? The fact that he is going to die. And that is what takes up his attention. And he doesn't just set his own focus on it. He wants his disciples to be watching. He wants their ears open, their eyes open. He wants them to pay attention as he goes through the late night arrests, through the trumped up charges, through the kangaroo court, through the beatings, the mocking, the nails, the cross, the crown, and the tomb. Because they're about to see something that if he told them beforehand exactly what all was going to happen, they would not believe him. In fact, he told them what was to happen, and they still did not believe him. That said... Jesus' reminder of his coming death is not just a passing pessimistic killjoy. It's not like Jesus is some pessimistic guy walking with the disciples. Oh yeah, guys, looks like you're having a great day. Just a reminder, I'm going to die. Let that darken your day a little bit. Carry on. It's not that Jesus isn't doing that. 
He's turning their eyes. He wants them with all the laughing and the joking and all the walking and all the eating and all the frustration with the Pharisees and all the things that are going on. He wants them to see through those things, to look to his cross and to remain focused on what's about to happen in Golgotha. So that said, whatever we read in this text, we get death and then we get taxes. What a random jump that is, right? Death, taxes, and then a fish, (laughs) So whatever this text here means in 24 through 27, it has to be read in the light of Golgotha. Otherwise, we're going to completely miss what Jesus is teaching us. It's not just about paying taxes. It's not just about catching fish. It's about something completely profound and relevant for you today. After his statement on his coming death, Jesus continues his journey and he arrives at Capernaum. And right when he gets there, you know, we all feel this kind of futility. We just get home and then there's a notice that it's tax time, right? So he gets to Capernaum and there two drachma tax collectors are waiting for him. They come and they ask Peter, does your, pe- does your teacher not pay the tax? I'm sure maybe they heard rumors about Jesus. You know, he had said some odd things. He kind of rejected some of the traditions of the forefathers. You know, he Uh, pointed out the Pharisees' hypocrisy. So how does he feel about the temple tax? Now, before we go any further, we need to know what exactly this two drachma tax is and why it needs to be paid. This isn't a mere civic tax. This isn't an income tax that Herod's giving. This isn't a tax from the Romans. The two drachma tax originates all the way back in Exodus 30. There, the Lord commanded Moses that everyone 20 years old and older is to give a half shekel as an offering to the Lord whenever there's a census. So whenever they're counted, everyone's to hand over a half shekel. Why? Because they will die if they don't. That's tax incentive right there, isn't it? They don't pay the tax, they'll be plagued. And their whole camp will be wiped out. It's explicit, everyone. God even says it doesn't matter how rich they are or how poor they are. Don't let them connive their way out of this tax. If they think they have no money, they must pay it. If they think they have too much money and therefore are allowed all these tax exemptions, it doesn't matter. They all must pay. So what was the tax for? Well, God says that the tax prevents a plague from breaking out against the assembly when they are numbered. Now, before we jump to conclusions about God being unfair about this, let's just stop and think about our God. We have a very safe image of God, don't we? We see this typically when modern people think about God, we see this old gentle grandfather in the sky. My friends, that is not the description of God throughout the Bible. Fire. White hot presence. A God who can speak and demolish entire cities. Think about it this way. God is an intensely holy God. And to dwell in his presence as a sinner is an incredibly dangerous affair. God is perfectly good. We don't even know what that means. We've never seen what perfect good looks like. God is 
perfectly good, infinitely righteous, and absolutely just on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we are thoroughly wicked down to our hearts. Every thought contemplating how to twist against God and how to reject him and dethrone him. Rebelliously unrighteous and absolutely depraved. My friends, as you as someone who loves justice, do you not get angry when you see crime on TV, for example? We expect good people, just people, to be angered by crime, right? Take a infinitely holy God who knows all of that is not as he created it to be. Take an infinitely depraved sinner. That anger and wrath is intensified infinitely. That's why there's an infinite punishment for rejecting God because it is not just that the sin is infinite. It is a sin cast on the infinite goodness of God Almost like throwing an infinitely valuable diamond into the muck. How dumb would that be? But that's exactly what our sin is. And that's exactly who God is. If you take a pile of dry grass and you pile it up next to an open fire, what happens? It engulfs in flames. We as sinners are dry grass. God is the open flame. You put us in the presence of an open flame. Burn up. Now I say all that because being a good and just judge, God cannot allow, allow evil to dwell in his presence. And that's a good thing. If he could, if he could tolerate evil in his presence, if he could tolerate sin, if he could tolerate humanity's crimes without any standard, without any atonement, then he would not be a good judge. He'd be no different than a judge who lets a criminal walk out of his court for free. Something must be paid. Some kind of justice must be exacted. So in order to remember, this is well before Christ comes. And so God is giving his people pictures of what is going to happen when he finally sends, sends the promised one. So he exacts this atonement tax to dwell in his presence. Something must be paid. He uses economic terms so that they get it. There is a purchase to be made. Something must be transacted. God refers to this tax in Exodus 30 as atonement money, ransom money. By paying this money, they ransom their lives. It seems bizarre, doesn't it? It's kind of like the Passover lamb. You remember back in Exodus when God has the Passover lamb and he sacrifices the Passover lamb and the blood's put over the door. And what happens? Death passes over. Well, with this atonement tax in Exodus 30, this atonement tax is paid and death passes over any for whom atonement has been made. And so their lives are saved. Just as the Passover lamb guaranteed that death would pass over God's people in Egypt, so also the shekel tax ensured that the danger of death would pass over those for whom atonement had been paid. Without this atonement, God says clearly, none could stand in the presence of God and live. My friends, you recognize on your own, in your own natural state, you cannot approach God. You can't. 
No one can see God's face and live. No one can come into the presence of God and not be consumed by his holiness. You are the dry grass. He's the open flame. So here's the question. How do we get that burning bush type of presence with God where us as dry grass can enjoy God's white hot presence without burning up? Something must happen. Well, God gave an initial solution to that by giving them the tabernacle. So this is the second use of the, t- of the temple tax, the two drachma tax. The tax ensured that the tabernacle, what's called the tent of meeting, would be properly maintained. And everything that is done in there, from the sacrifices to the burning incense, to the showbread, everything that is done to symbolize a relationship with God is paid for by the atonement tax. Without that tabernacle, Israel had no safe access to God. To see his face unveiled would mean death to these guilty, sinful Israelites. So God, being rich in mercy, gave the temple, veiled himself so that they could see and be with him in their presence, in his presence without burning up. By taking care of the tabernacle, by paying the tax for the sacrifices and all else that happened in the tabernacle, the atonement tax ensured that Israel maintained safe access to God, a, a, a safe passage. Now let's fast forward to the temple days. The tax that we are calling the two drachma tax is now known as the temple tax. And it funded specifically the morning and the evening sacrifices. That money that they paid, paid for that morning and evening sacrifice. And what those sacrifices did was it ensured that the temple stayed sanctified so that God would continue to dwell there and God's people could continue to approach. Without the tamid, those sacrifices, no Israelite could come into God's house and live So it's continued to be paid. And all the way up to Jesus' day, that's what the atonement tax did. It paid for the sacrifice. It paid for the blood on the altar. It It paid for the Israelites' right of access to come into the holy place where God was. So here's a simple logic for those of you that have been lost in some of these details. Number one, sinners cannot approach a holy God without atonement. Sinners cannot approach a holy God without atonement. Number two, atonement must be made in the right way. It must be made in God's way. It must be his way that his wrath is satisfied through sacrifices. And then number three, this tax that Jesus is asked to pay here ensured the sacrifices and the place in which they were offered would continue without interruption so that Israel's sin could be atoned for and God's people could dwell in his presence. So it just maintained that relationship with God. It was the same atonement that Israel is needing as Jesus is walking in Israel. It's the same atonement, the same problem. Atonement was a tax that must be paid for all and no one was exempt except for one very special person. Do you realize that? No one's exempt. Rich, poor, young, old. They're 20 years and up. They must pay this tax. No one's exempt. Everyone pays. Everyone must pay, except for one very unique, amazing, glorious individual. And that should be exciting to us. That someone who does not have to pay has come onto the scene. 
After being approached by the tax collectors, Peter enters the house where Jesus sits. Jesus doesn't need to be told what just happened. He speaks first. I can imagine him just kind of sitting back. It's been a long journey from the rest of Galilee to Capernaum. He's tired. He's dealt with a lot. He knows that he's about to die, so he's trying to clear his mind and relax. Don't know if Peter had a lazy boy, but if he had, he's probably sitting there. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? It's a very odd way to begin a teaching, isn't it? Doesn't really ask Peter to explain what's going on. He doesn't really wait for Peter to say, hey, we're in this really awkward position. Um, They're looking at us to pay the taxes, and we really don't want that kind of bad rep on our PR. Um, So as your PR representative, I'm going to tell you to pay the tax because we don't really need that kind of flight. He doesn't wait for Peter to do any of that. He just simply asks, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? He points to the natural way that things go in kingdoms. What would you say if Jesus asked you that question? Do king's sons and daughters pay taxes to the king? Well, no, the king's sons and daughters are exempt. His family's exempt. The king better not make the queen pay a toll tax on the way to come to see him. That's one way to get assassinated. The king's family doesn't have to pay taxes. It's all the others that are outside of the family. So Jesus concludes, he affirms that what Peter has said is right. And he says, then the sons are free. My friends, at this point, who is the son? We're not saying sons yet, because death hasn't happened yet. So there are no outsiders who are sons of God. There's really only one who we know, according to Matthew 16, who is the son of the living God. So who's the only person in this text that is free from the toll tax? It's Jesus. Connecting Jesus in his question with the necessity of the two drachma tax, the temple tax. Does Jesus actually need to pay the temple tax? The answer is a resounding no. If anyone in all the history of the world was exempt from having to pay atonement, to approach God, it's Jesus. And Jesus' point is that if earthly kings do not tax their sons, then how much more is he, as the son of God, exempt from paying taxes? Do you realize what the temple is to Jesus? Jesus is the king of Israel's son. The king of Israel sits in the temple. Jesus calls the temple, my father's house. Does Jesus need to pay to see his own father? No. He is absolutely righteous, absolutely perfect. He owes no temple tax. He is free. He has 100% tax exemption. He needs no atonement because he has no sins to atone for. He doesn't need the morning and evening sacrifices. He needs no blood to be shed for him. He's absolutely perfect. He stands in his own natural righteousness. He doesn't need the righteousness of another. He's the only person in all human history that didn't need someone or something to die for him. 
so that he could have a relationship with God. He stood in no danger. Theoretically, he could waltz right into the Holy of Holies, whom we know know that in the Holy of Holies, any person that waltzes right into the Holy of Holies dies. He could walk right in there and live and be perfectly at home. Little did these tax collectors know who they were referring to when they said, does your teacher pay the tax? A better question would be, does your teacher need to pay the tax? Now, through his question to Peter, Jesus implies his own exemption as the son of the divine king. He has no obligation to pay the tax. And so as in light of this exemption, what does Jesus do? What would you do? I like my exemptions. I like having rights. I like having, I don't have to pay for that kind of attitude. Man, if I was tax exempt, I'm not paying. Would anybody else feel like that? Am I the only one? Why pay for something that I don't have to pay for? When when we go car shopping, you should just see me. I'm not paying for any stinking warranty. We shouldn't pay for things we don't have to pay for. You sell me a lemon, you pay for it. Jesus, more than anyone, has rights and exemptions that we can't even fathom. Does Jesus stomp his foot and say, I'm not paying? He doesn't. He tells Peter, fight for your rights, Peter. Is that what he says? No. However, not to give offense to them. In other words, not to lead them to sin. That's what the word offense means. In other words, not to lead them to reject Jesus outright and out of hand. Not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast the hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now in saying this, Jesus is not simply trying to avoid confrontation. We know Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of conflict, is he? He will look at the Pharisees and say, you brood of vipers. That's a pretty offensive thing to say to somebody, to call him a snake. He doesn't do that. He's not afraid of conflict. But anytime he does avoid conflict in Matthew's gospel explicitly, it shows his role as the suffering servant. He's the one who won't cry aloud or quarrel out in the street. He's the one that when it's possible, when it's up to his rights, when it's a question of his rights, he doesn't demand and cling to his rights. Yes, he's exempt. But as the chosen servant, he lays down his rights to serve others. What does Jesus, what Jesus does in this passage is consistent with Paul's description of him in Philippians 2. We've read this before. Some of us have it memorized. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he had God's own nature, though he had every right as God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped clung to. In, in, the, in the Greek, it's something to be held on to, to your own benefit. 
He didn't empty himself of his divine nature. He emptied of himself his divine rights. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul goes on to say that Jesus held his natural rights as God so loosely that he humbled himself even to die on the cross like a slave. As God, he never deserved the treatment he received. If they had clearly seen him as God, do you think they would have spit on his face? Do you think they would have pulled the beard? Do you think they would have hammered? Do you think they would have tested? Would they have mocked? Would they have crucified if they had truly known that he is God and who it was to whom they were doing these things? Do they know who they're dealing with? The very one who spoke. Gosh, I love Narnia so much. (laughs) This lion that could kill all these little dwarves and the white witch with a swipe of his paw. They don't know how deep his claws can go. They don't know how much he could just open his mouth and consume every last one of them. He is the lion. And he silently walks the stone table and lays down like a lamb. And the sacrificial knife stabs his heart. My friends, that's what we find in Jesus. Lion of Judah. He can speak a word. And as we know from the gospels, he could call down legions of angels. He tells Peter, do you not know I have the host of heaven at my command? This is the same one Joshua met outside of Jericho and fell down on his face. This is the all-powerful one who spoke And his melodious music coming from his mouth made mountains and Mount Everest in the bottom depths of the sea. His hand could have crushed them. And he had every right to. But what did he do instead? He took the nail. He took the cross. He took the thorn. As it applies to Matthew 17, Jesus had every right not to pay the tax as the son. He was naturally exempt. And yet he lays down his right and pays the tax. He tells Peter to go fishing. The first fish he's going to catch is going to have a shekel in its mouth and the shekel, which is worth four drachma. So it's, Enough for two people now to come in to the temple. He's going to find a shekel in this fish's mouth. Now, what does all this have to do with Jesus, who he is, and what he is going to do on the cross? The subtle details of Jesus' command to Peter reveal deep truths about Jesus' true nature as the Davidic king and his role as a suffering servant. We hold these things in tension. He is a king and servant. He is royal, victorious, conqueror, and yet he's also the suffering slave of humanity. 
First, it is at his word that the fish costs up a shekel. Who can speak and make nature do these things? Even John Banks himself, the great fisherman of our time, could not make a fish do this kind of thing. I mean, this is just amazing. He speaks and goes, you're going to find a fish with a coin in its mouth. You're going to take that. That to me, it's just a subtle tip of his hand. Hey, we're going to pay it, but don't forget I'm God. I'm the creator. I can speak and make fish. I spoke the fish into existence. I can make them cough up coins. I think that's a subtle detail that we see Jesus speaking here. Second, Notice that he doesn't only pay the tax for himself. It isn't like he says, well, Peter, you caught my fish. You got my coin. I got my temple tax. Where's yours? He doesn't do that. Instead, he pays for Peter's as well. Here's the the, the kicker. Peter, unlike Jesus, bore the guilt of sin. Peter, on his own, had no natural exemptions. Peter still needed atonement. Jesus hadn't yet died for Peter's sins. If anyone needs atonement, still Peter. Without that atonement tax, he has no more right to access the temple than a Gentile. He would be far off. And yet, Jesus pitches in and pays for his right to approach God. In essence, what Jesus says and does in this brief text serves as an enacted parable, explaining what he is about to do. Who is he? He is the perfect, holy, tax-exempt son of God who has unrestricted access to his father's house. What has he come to do? He has come to pay the atonement tax. The same tax for which he is exempt So that others like Peter may also have unrestricted access to God. He doesn't insist upon his exemption from the temple tax. He doesn't insist upon his exemption from God's wrath. He's the absolutely spotless lamb in life. And yet he bore the cross of an absolute depraved sinner. Took a cross he did not deserve. Died a death that was not his. And in doing so, paid a debt that was yours. He who is rich in heaven with glory and love from the Father became poor so that he could buy your seat so that for all eternity, you could receive the wealth of God's kindness. He became poor so we could become rich in the grace of God. Colossians 2 puts it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in doing so, Jesus becomes like the Passover lamb who dies and whose blood purchases a night that we don't have to fear death. He purchases our right to approach God. He bore the wrath so that the temple curtain could be torn in two, opening the way for us to come into God's presence in confidence. And then after he died, 
after he took our death, he freely gave his resurrected life to us. It's not a resurrected life that you've earned. It's not a resurrected life that you've won. It's a resurrected life that he won and he paid for. And you sit in his purchase. Your seat at the table was bought by him. And for all eternity, we'll know that. He is the tax-exempt son who has paid our tax and purchased for us the right to approach God. Now, there's several applications that can be made from this. Um, We're only going to focus on two. I think we only have time for two. First and foremost, those of you that have trusted in Jesus, here's an application for you. Bask in the glory of being tax-free. You don't owe anything. I mean, Romans 9 says there is now no condemnation. There's no more wrath to be paid. My friends, does that not breathe hope into your heart? Everything else in the world can go wrong. You have free access to God. Your house can fall and the only thing left standing is the door. And yet the bridge, the chasm has been bridged by the blood of Christ for you. Can we just bask in the glory of how amazing that is? We could not pay. Everything in us was bankrupt. We deserved eternity of tax debt and punishment for that debt to be thrown in debtor's prison forever. And he who owed no debts paid yours. What are we whining about? My friends, bask in the glory of it. What do you do now that you know that you're tax-free? Enjoy being tax-free. Approach God in confidence. You have a heavy heart. Go to him. It was blood-bought. You can't sleep at night. Speak out loud to him. That right was bought by Christ. You're afraid. Knock on the door of your heavenly father who never sleeps because you have been brought in as a tax-exempt son and daughter and you live in his house now. Wake him up. He doesn't sleep, but wake him up anyway. Man, how little do we think of the rights that have been bought us by Jesus. The access that we take for granted and neglect so often. We languish in our fear, in our anger, in our worry, in our anxiety. All the while, Jesus reminding us and whispers that he's paid the price so you don't have to languish in that by yourself. My friends, You may have so many sins in your past life, so many sins in your last 60 years of life, so many sins in your last 30 days that you feel like you cannot approach God. Things you've done, things you've hidden. My friends, it has been paid for. Things you thought nobody else knew. Jesus paid for even that. You weren't worth it. 
You weren't. But the Prince of Heaven came down and died for slaves of sin like us. So that we can go from being slaves to sons. There's nothing you can do about that. There's no way you can apply it. Except simply to say thank you and live in that thanks. When you've been given such grace. Don't throw mud on it by thinking about what do I have to do now. Focus on the exemption that has been purchased by the one who was exempt. And thank him. And live in gratitude. Now second. This one hits a little closer to home to myself. As we have already seen, Philippians 2 glories in the fact that Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights, of his divine nature. So that he could serve us in his death. Paul adds to this great redemptive truth that we as believers are to have this mind among yourselves. What does he mean by that? Do the same thing. My friends, as often as we Christians speak about our rights, we speak about them completely unbiblically. We have rights. We have exemptions. How often have we thought that maybe those rights were given given to us so that we can sometimes lay them down to image the cross of Christ? I have the freedom of speech. In addition to that free access to God, I have the freedom of speech. Now do I use that freedom of speech, that right to say anything I want to say? Do I use it now to hurt and maim and abandon others? Or do I use my freedom of speech to draw others to the free access of God? If I can say anything I want, guess what? What you say next reveals what you find valuable in your heart. Someone hands you a microphone and says, here you go. Tell us the most important thing in your life. Now you get five minutes. So often we insist on rights. And so little do we show that rights are sometimes laid down. We are people who cannot be inconvenienced. That's my garage. That's my space. That's my things. That's my money. That's my time. That's my spare room. And all the while the gospel reminds us, well, that was your cross that became his. Nobody's telling you not to fight for rights. I just want you to think of your rights as the right thing. Your rights are not to be insisted upon. Jesus didn't need to defend his rights. He had them. They were his. He was the son of God. As children, as sons and daughters of God, you have rights that have been blood bought for you in Jesus. No one can take them away. Now, here's the question. How do you use those rights? Do you take up the mind of Christ? Pay taxes for those which you've already been exempt. Don't be the unforgiving servant whose debt's been paid and then carries the debt for everybody else and exacts the interest on them. They say something to you. So you're going to get angrier and angrier and angrier. You're going to make them answer and pay for what they've said and done. And yet Jesus who had every right to do that to us never did. 
Friends, if we are willing to follow Jesus, sometimes we need to focus less on our exemptions and rights and focus more on the one who laid down his rights so that we could have rights and be exempt. Instead of talking about all the things that we naturally have, why don't we use the opportunity to serve others, to have the mind of Christ? What would Jesus have done with freedom of speech? What would Jesus have done with the Second Amendment? What would Jesus have done with your Bill of Rights? I don't think he would have gloried in the rights. I think he would have gloried in God who made us to have those rights. And then still carried the cross to show just what it means to be someone who sacrificially serves others. My friends, we are free people. No man has made us free. And any American who doesn't know Jesus is not really free. We are free people as children and sons and daughters of God who by faith now have our debt paid. Are we willing to shed? Even, even, even just by way of a metaphor, are we even metaphorically ready to shed blood so that others could be free as well? Most of us can't fathom it. And yet that's what Jesus has done. The tax-exempt son has died so that we could be free. May we, as tax-exempt sons and daughters, now work and labor and strive and cry and pray and weep and mourn and rejoice over the freedom that we proclaim to others through the gospel. If you are not living in the tax exemption of the gospel and living for others to have tax exemption through the gospel, you are not living the life in the mind of Christ. Because that is what he has called you to do. That is your greatest responsibility. Let's pray. Father God, our right to approach you in the throne room of grace has been bought to us by Jesus Father God, he did not insist on his rights, though he had every right. He laid down none of his nature as God, even on the cross. And yet, Father, he died as a slave. Lord, may we at least in application be willing to show a glimpse of what that looks like. May we change our rhetoric, Father. May we change our hearts so that we can sacrifice some, even a little, just so that others may hear the gospel. Father, Jesus didn't die for just anything. He died for redemption. May we be willing to die for redemption of others as well. May we be willing to have our lives lost so that others might find life in Christ. Let us be gospel-centered people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.